Good morning. How y'all doing? Cedar Home Baptist Church. Praise the Lord. We are so glad to be able to be with you today. My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors at Faith Community Church in New Richmond, Wisconsin. Uh, but I'm actually from Maryland, and so if y'all have wonderful Wisconsin jokes that you've been saving for this very moment, I just want to let you know they're going to go right over my head. You can tell them. I'm sure they're funny, but I won't understand them. I wanted to take a moment really quick before we get started. Um, Eric loves me very much and I love him very much, uh, but he did warn me that I have 35 minutes exactly today. Um, and so I just wanna let you know this does not count because it is the introduction, okay, Eric? All right. Uh, <laughs> my wife and I wanna take a moment to thank you all. Because uh, as Keith was saying, it was so amazing to have the opportunity to see so many of you before today, um, to hear your hearts, to, to witness you in the work that's happening in youth ministry, in the Bible studies that are happening here, in sowing with purpose, not a purpose, with purpose, right? <laughs> um, just so many wonderful things that the Lord is already doing at Cedar Home, and we had a chance to just be a part of it for a week, and that was a real blessing. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for so many people coming up to us and saying, we've been praying for your family. We've been praying for the calm of your heart. We've been praying for this moment right now. It, we felt that, and we've been very thankful. And I, I want to thank the deacons, and I want to thank the search team, because they have been taking care of you all very well. I don't know if you know that, but they have been taking care of you. They've been diligent and faithful and loving. And uh, not even just to you all, but they've been diligent and faithful and loving to us as they got to know us and asked us some amazing questions and showed genuine care all the way from Washington that we felt in Wisconsin. So thank you all so much. And with that said, now we're going to start. All right. So a dangerous thing occurred uh, the, as we were preparing for this day in which they let me pick the text that we're going to be studying today. And just so you know, it's Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Um, it's dangerous telling a preacher they can, they can pick the text, just as dangerous as giving them a mic and saying they can talk as long as they want. Eric did not do that, thankfully, because he loves you very much. I was affirmed today that as we were going to go through this text in Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20, that it was, it was the right one. And I, I think it's because, honestly, this is a text that is very near and dear to my heart. Okay, as I have been growing up in the Lord, this is uh, a part of the Gospels that is going to show us a picture of who Jesus is. So I'm excited that we get to share it together. Um, but if you are versed in Scripture, you know that we are about to go through the story of how Jesus heals a man with a demon in Decapolis. Yes, I just said demon, okay? Some of your eyebrows just went up because you're thinking, well, demon, the first sermon that you preach at Cedar Home, and you're going to preach about demons, Ben. Well, that is a great way to make sure that that is the last sermon that you preach at Cedar Home. But you need to give me a chance, okay? Because I'm telling you, we know that all scriptures breathed out by God is good for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training up in righteousness. But the fact is, I believe that this story and the Gospels as a whole are excellent examples of 
just how true that verse in 2 Timothy chapter 3 really is. And so let's, uh, let's start there. Let's set our expectations by, by grounding ourselves in the context of the gospel. So I'm going to start by talking to you about the gospel of Mark a little bit. Then we're going to read through Mark chapter 5, verse 1 through 20, and I might make a, little co- a couple comments here and there. But then we're going to finish up our time together by going through two major observations that I would like you all to meditate on, all right? Let's make that deal together right now. I'd like you to think about them, pray about these two major observations with your families, with your community groups, and even as you're going back out into this community of Stanwood, take it with you throughout the week. The Gospels are incredibly underrated. I'll start there. I believe that with all my heart. They're they're underrated genres, friends, because the truth is we want to go straight to the epistles. We want to talk. We want to see what Paul has to say on things because he's just so practical. He'll spell out our faith for for us step by step. But the, the thing about the Gospels is that when Mark pens the very first Gospel in about 50 to 60 AD, he's penning a document that no one in human history had ever done before. Do you realize that? The Gospels, the good news of this man, Jesus Christ, up until that point in history, no one had had a document like that. And so in the first century, as as people are are getting into these books for the very first time, their hearts are pumping because they want to hear more about this man, Jesus, and, and who he is and what he has done. And I want us to share that type of eagerness as we pour into Mark today for the first time together. Now, just some fun facts for you. Mark was certainly written by John Mark, all right? If, if any of you are familiar who John Mark was, he was a, 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 a partner with Paul and Barnabas in their early missionary journeys. But church tradition also tells us that John Mark knew Peter very well. We know who Peter is, right? Oh, we're quiet today, you guys. I need a little interaction. Come on. We know who Peter is, right? All right, very good. Yeah, no, Peter, he's, he's the guy who's swinging swords and cutting off ears when he's not supposed to, right? Peter's the one that's constantly saying the thing that he should have kept his mouth shut, right? The, on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is in all his holiness and wonders. And literally in the book of Mark, it says, Peter didn't have words to say. And so what he says is, Lord, man, it'd be really good if we built some tents right now. That just sounds like a great idea. But the cool thing is, Peter was one of three men that Jesus poured into so explicitly his inner circle, right? Peter, James, and John. And so he knew the Lord. He walked with the Lord. And it's so exciting to think that he might have shared with with John Mark those insights as John Mark is penning out this gospel. Y'all getting a little more excited now? All right, all right. We're, We're waking up. We're waking up. Final thing about Mark that really gets me excited is that Mark wastes no time in saying anything in his gospel. He constantly uses this word immediately, right? Immediately they went. Immediately he saw. And then immediately they left. Immediately appears nine times in the very first chapter of Mark. And so what that tells us is that the book was written with a sense of urgency. Incredibly intentional. Everything was spelled out to make sure that we understood the events that were unfolding. But then simultaneously, Mark is inviting the listeners to make a determination about the very first verse that he writes in this book, and that is Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This is how it begins, and it's it's a page-turner. He says, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. 
The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Just 12 words, but jam-packed with some real exciting news if you are hearing this for the very first time. Because, right, the word gospel is there. Again, if this is the first gospel, it's the first time that word is being used in this context to explain a brand new document, friends. Something that spells out the good news. But it's the good news about somebody, right? About this man, Jesus, who he calls the Christ, the Messiah, the one who many of the listeners had been waiting for their entire lives. Many of their grandparents had been waiting for their entire lives. And finally, Mark tells us that this is not just Jesus, the Messiah, but he's the son of God. And friends, we know that means that he is God himself. And so this is absolutely a page turner. It's the sort of thing that's supposed to get your heart pumping because Mark is now setting our minds to understand as that thesis statement that everything that is going to come after it is going to show us in every story and every word for the remainder of the book how this good news is about Jesus, the Messiah, who is God. And that brings us to our text today. Now I'm going to start in Mark chapter 4. I have a lot of fun facts for you. I love history, and I love Bible fun facts. So here's one for you. Um, When the Bible was written, it was written in a couple of languages. The New Testament is written in Greek. But when it was written, it was not written with chapters or verses. So we use those to navigate. We use them to memorize Scripture, and that's all well and good. But the the, the problem with that is when we turn to Mark chapter 5 and we say that's where our story begins, if we don't actually look at the surrounding text, we're going to miss the context of the story. We're we're not even going to know how Jesus got there, are we? So let's backtrack. Let's go to Mark chapter 4, verse 35, where Jesus is, he's preaching to the people in Galilee, to his disciples, but then he says something that is absolutely terrifying to them, okay? This is what he says in verse 35. Let's go across to the other side. That sounds pretty harmless, right? Why would that be terrifying to them? Anybody know? Who's on the other side? The Gentiles. Oh my, oh my. So to their credit, the 12 don't complain in Scripture, right? Uh, Mark and Peter, they don't share that with us. But I'm telling you, when they hear Jesus say, let's go to the cross to the other side, their skin would have crawled. They would have been freaking out because they know that if you go across the sea, there's only one thing you're going to do. And there's only one place you're going to go. You're going to go to Decapolis. And you're going to see those, ugh, Gentiles. So uh, as the chapter unfolds, we have this amazing story that I would love to unpack for you, but I only have 35 minutes. And so um, there's this storm, and the disciples say the sort of thing that you only say when, when you're panicking. Don't you care, Lord, that we're perishing? Jesus wakes up two seconds, bam. This great storm becomes a great calm, and they are left with this great fear of wondering who this guy is that they're in the boat with. And it brings us to the very beginning of our story as they're stepping off the boat. Okay, so now we have our context. Let's get into Mark chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 1. They came across to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately... There it is. Immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. 
Now this man had lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he, he would wrench those chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces, and no one had the strength to subdue this man. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out, and he was, he was cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and he fell down before Jesus. Okay, let's take a pause there, and let's make some observations. A couple things here, church. Um, let's note that Jesus doesn't have time to do anything in Decapolis, okay? He gets off the boat, and it says immediately this man, um, either the desperate man himself or the demons within him, are compelling him to run up to the Lord and throw themselves down at Jesus' feet. And so a holy God is approaching a man's life, and an interaction is inevitable, Hold on to that. The second thing, let, let's look at this man's state. It says that he was living among the tombs. So all the Jews that were getting off the boat, they know and are horrified that this is ceremonially unclean. But the truth is, the truth is that even the Gentiles would have considered this at the very least and, and a not ideal situation. And speaking of those Gentiles, we, we got to know a little bit about, about them, didn't we? It says that they had previously done some kind of attempt to either help or subdue this man. They tried to bind him with shackles and with chains. In, um, anybody got a new King James Version? Well, I, I, I was going to say praise the Lord, but all right. Well, I guess you guys are reading ESV. Good job. In the new King James Version, in, in verse 4, there's something funny that happens. It says they tried to tame that man. They tried to tame him like an animal is the connotation there. And, and supernaturally, the demons with this, in this man, they, they, he sh they shook off the chains and they broke them. And so this is the most interesting part. The world abandoned this man. They abandoned him to his circumstance. Hold, that, oh, hold on to that for a second. And so the last thing we see is that this man is living in constant torment. His existence is among the dead, and we know that's ceremonially unclean, but he is also being compelled, and it says this is happening day and night, every single day. His screams could be heard by the communities that are around him, and we know there are communities because we're surely going to see that there's some men guarding some pigs nearby. So our story is going to continue here as the only one who has power to do something about this man's state, draws near. And crying out with a loud voice, the demon-possessed man said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I urge you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. And a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside, and they were begging him, saying, Send us to the pigs and let us enter them. So he gave them permission. He gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs, and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank and into the sea, and they drowned in the sea. Okay, let's take another pause. 
Some of you are going to be a little disappointed today because uh, when I said earlier that we we're going to be talking about demons, you weren't the ones that your eyebrows raised. You were kind of like, ooh, that sounds good. Like, let's talk about that a little bit. I want to know how, you know, the, the supernatural elements of this world operate. Maybe he's going to tell us a little bit about how demons interact with, with Christians or with non-Christians. That'd be a lot of fun. Well, the truth is we're not going to do that. So I'm sorry. It's necessary, friends, necessary that we don't spend time talking about the demons today because honestly, the text doesn't. Look at this. Remember our summary statement in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. This book is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so it's his story. It's not about the demons. Friends, it's not even about the man. It's about the Lord. And so we always have to be looking at that as we're reading through the passage. We're going to learn about the Lord today. And I'm going to tell you, this is what we can learn about the Lord in this moment. The demons know God. And they quake at the sound of the voice of the Son of God. James chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they shudder. And so even a part of our, uh, apart from the application points that we're going to get to eventually, no matter what, as we're looking at TV, uh, we're looking on movies, how, how, how they're being portrayed in our culture, or even if, if one day we encounter demonic activity, the truth is, friends, there is a universal reaction of evil in this world, and it is to tremble at the presence of our Lord, to fear and to beg that he would delay his inevitable victory that we sung about today as we worshiped. They know that day is coming. They know that they will be destroyed and Satan will be destroyed. And so in reality, as anticlimactic as it sounds, as we read through this text, that's exactly what unfolds, friends. The man or the demons within him, they acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and the Most High God. And then they're defeated systematically by Jesus. With his permission and by his command, this legion of demons, they take possess of some nearby herd of pigs, and then they disappear entirely from our narrative. We don't get to talk about them anymore. So the last thing I'm going to say about demons, at least today, is that we ought to remember who rules and reigns. It is Jesus Christ, the Son of the Most High God. So let's keep going, okay? Verse 14, that's where we're at. The herdsmen fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, all the things that had happened. And the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus, and they saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, and, and he was sitting right there, and he was, he was clothed, and he was in his right mind. And they were afraid. And they began to beg Jesus to depart the region. Now we're almost done with our story, but it's necessary to stop here a moment and acknowledge a really sad truth, okay? As we look at these herdsmen and we look at the people who are interacting with Jesus, there's a really sad truth that's unpacked for us. Um, when you're reading through your commentaries, how many of y'all have commentaries? You know, like when you're reading, like, very good, don't be nervous. Yeah, uh, we, we should have something that we can, we can read through the Word of God and we can study through and get some details about it. Well, the fun fact is, as you're, as you're reading through this passage, you might have read a thing or two about the pigs. The pigs! Nice! Uh, why was Jesus so cruel to these pigs, you know? 2,000 of them, are you kidding me? The demons just took them and ran them off to the end of their lives. What about the people? The poor economy of Decapolis is literally swimming in the drink right now. 
because all of those pigs have disappeared. Well, if we're asking ourselves questions about the pigs, um, can I gently ask you to consider the, the real tragedy of verse 14? What's going on with those herdsmen? Friends, surely those herdsmen heard daily the screams of the man who was living amongst the dead as he tortured himself and was tormented by those demons. Were they concerned with his cries? Did they hear him when he was crying out? Were they part of the, the, the group of people that tried to tame him like an animal and then abandoned him to the demons? We don't know the answer to any of those questions because the text doesn't tell us an answer to any of those questions. No, the only thing we know is that now that their checkbooks had been hurt, now that this thing had hit them economically in their hearts and in their pockets, what they did was they turned and they fled from that situation and they went to tell the authorities about Jesus. See, in isolation, that's, that's a tragic type of behavior that I, I think if we take a pause, we can see that being emulated in the world around us. But the truth is, it's not the end of the story because then the people get involved, don't they? They all want to figure out what's going on. The herdsmen tell them, you know, the, the demons came into these pigs and they ran off the side of the cliff. And so the people come out and they want to verify these events, right? And so it says they came to Jesus and they, they saw the demon-possessed man. You know what that tells us? They knew who it was. They recognized this man. But see, now, the one who had had the legion was sitting there calmly. He was clothed for the first time in who knows how long. And he was in his right mind. And it says they were afraid. Why didn't they rejoice? Why didn't they see the deliverance that had come to this man's life that they had, they had previously tried to tame him? And one came who had the power to restore this man to his former state, to free him from the thing that he had been suffering from day and night. And it says they were afraid. Verse 17 comes along, and this is the sort of thing that should tear your heart out of your chest. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region to beg the healer to leave and not just to leave their home, but to leave their country. They begged Jesus just as the demons had begged him to let them stay. So the world sees Jesus working and they want no part of it. And I'm telling you, friends, there were so many times in Scripture where we wonder, um, why is it that, that God's not doing more miracles? He's not doing more signs and wonders. This is the reason why people see them. And apart from God moving in their hearts, their reaction to it is to reject it almost irrationally, just like these people do. It's an absolute tragedy. But, but the good news is that it's not the end of the story. Let's finish it. Verse 18. Now as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with a demon begged him that he might be with him. But Jesus did not permit him and said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went. And he began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. 
Now, this is my favorite part of the story, church. This is the part that gives me goosebumps and makes me want to come back to this text again and again and again to, to see the character of who our God is and what he is actively doing, what he has done, but what he is doing now amongst us. Don't miss it, what it says in verse 18. This is so exciting. It says, Jesus was getting into the boat. Look, friends, Jesus doesn't have to do anything, does he? He doesn't have to do a thing that we ask him to do. Listen, there are so many examples in Scripture alone in which Jesus is interacting with the people around him, and they very similarly have this type of reaction to him where they say, please go away, and he says, thank you, but no thank you. I have a mission to do, and so I will stay. Because he still has work to do there, the Lord remains. But look, he's asked to leave by the people of Decapolis, and what does he do? He gets back in the boat so he can go home. Friends, the text is telling us a clear message. When we read the book of Mark, sometimes we say it's concise, it's very short. This is, man, this is the longest account of all of the gospels about the story of this man. And so Mark is not being concise here. He's giving us every detail we need to know to know who Jesus is and what he has done. And he has given us a clear message here. When Jesus says, let's get back in the boat, he's saying to those 12 men, the mission that we set out on in chapter four, when I said, get in the boat and we're going across the side or the sea, that mission has been accomplished. And so it's time to go. It's all coming together now, church. When we're reading this, Jesus, he's come to the shores of Decapolis. He risked his life in a storm. He had deviated from the mission that he had with the people in Galilee, and he did so to pursue and to rescue one man. One unclean, demon-possessed, rejected and despised, tormented and unclothed, no-good Gentile man. And having rescued that man and freed him from the death and the torment that he had lived in every single day that the world had abandoned him to, having accomplished that mission, Jesus now turns to his followers and he says, get in the boat, we're going home. Church, that's the heart of our God. And we know that. It's the heart of our God, the man who has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, and he leaves the 99 on the mountains, and what does he do? He goes to search for the one. But that's where the story really takes off. It's where it really gets exciting, because now we know that he does so with a purpose. The man, the demon-possessed man, comes up to Jesus um, after all of these things had unfolded, and he grabs him, and he begs him, and he says, Lord, let me come with you, Right? Then that's the natural reaction that one who has been touched by the, the hand of God, let me come with you. I want to be with you. I want to see all of the wonders that you do, and I want to proclaim to everyone you interact with just how special you are. But Jesus says, no. Guys, everyone in the first century must have been like on, on, their, um, on their, their tippy toes trying to, you know, hear the next words. And they hear Jesus say no. And they're like, what? Are you kidding me? No. Lord, he wants to be with you. He wants to, he wants to be a part of what you're doing. But Jesus has a wonderful plan, doesn't he, in verse 19. He says no. And then he says, go home to your friends. 
and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. That's the best part, isn't it? All those people had just rejected the Lord. And he didn't determine that he was going to stay among them and do more miracles and bless them with his presence. But simultaneously, he refused to abandon them to their destruction. He says to this man, I have a plan for you, brother. I have always planned to rescue you from this torment that you have been in so that you would be free and so that you would go and you would tell everyone that you know what the Lord has done for you. And you know what, church? The heart of a changed man gets exactly what Jesus is saying. In verse 20, he does it. It says, and so he went and he began to proclaim in Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. So that's the story. It wasn't so bad, right? All right. I I can see you guys are excited. Application time, okay? I want you to move on to those two things that that I want to, to, to saturate your minds this week. I want you to pray about them with your families. And the first one is this. Jesus is the God who pursues a people personally. Now, hopefully you got that in all the things we were talking about, but I'm going to say it again. Jesus is the God who pursues a people personally. And friends, that means you. It seems kind of obvious, but I'm going to remind you of a major element of today's story. Jesus knew that there was a man across the sea that was wallowing in death and pain and the horrible effects of a sinful world. And without hesitation, he intentionally sets out to call this man into a new life and to freedom from the death and destruction that the forces of evil had had over his life. But as much as we could isolate that truth to say this is just a story about one man— You all know by the testimony of Scripture, by by the testimony of your own lives, that Jesus did this for you too, didn't he? He did this for everyone in this room that calls themselves a believer. Each one of you, individually, according to the time that it says in Ephesians chapter 1, he had appointed before time began, Jesus had planned to rescue you in this way. In Ephesians chapter 2, it spells it out like this. We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we had once walked, following the course of this world, following the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now in the work in sons of disobedience, and among whom we had lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and our mind, we were by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind. But then God, being rich in mercy, because of the, the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Jesus Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's not your own doing. This is a gift from God, not the result of works, so that no man may boast. 
Friends, that's Paul's way of saying God rescued you. Whatever your circumstance was, even if it in no way involved a demon of any kind, God set out that you would be free from this world and you would be rescued into a new life as his child so that we could sit at the feet of Jesus and we could have peace in our hearts that were once tormented by our sin. And like this man, we can find rest. And remembering that truth, it not only is going to produce a peace in our heart, a spirit-induced peace, but remembering that truth, Christian, produces a desire that leads us to cry out to the master, Lord, let me follow you into the boat. And this is what he says to you. Our next point is this. Jesus is a God who sets his people apart for a mission. He is a God who sets his people apart for a mission. So what does the Lord do when he shows uh, this man a new life? Jesus immediately reorients, reorients his heart, doesn't he? He reorients his heart to realize that he has a job for him to do. He immediately sends that man out to do the work of reaching the world around him in Jesus' name. That man that was previously despised, previously rejected, had actually been perfectly set up for the work that Jesus had in store for him. A work that he didn't even think about doing the moment that Jesus rescued him. And Jesus told him, go to your people, the people who know you, who know who you were and who are now able to see who you are. And when they ask you inevitably, how? How is it that you were once this way and now you are completely different? Jesus gave the man exactly the words he had to say. Tell them what the Lord has done for you. Tell them what I have done for you. And the man knew. He was prepared to say, I was dead. I was despised. I was rejected in my, in my sins and the demons that had a grip on my life. But this man, this Jesus, the Christ, the son of the most high God, he loved me and he pursued me and he rescued me. And he will do the same thing for you. And church, on the day he rescued you, he did the exact same thing for every single one of you. He brought you to an understanding of who you were. He rescued you from that place of sin. And then he set you apart by his grace to the work of being ambassadors of reconciliation. To carry the message of the gospel, which is his story, it is not our story, to the rest of the world that is perishing all around us. And with new hearts, church... We will not ignore the suffering of this perishing world, but we have been empowered by the Spirit of God to engage in the place he has strategically placed us before time began to bring glory to his name by, by making disciples of Jesus Christ through gospel-centered worship and community and service and multiplication. That's catchy. We should use that. <laughs> to all the nations of the world, and to this nation where he has planted us for a reason. Church, do you see what God is doing even in and among us right now? 
Friends, I have to ask you, do you know the Lord? Do you belong to him? Have you acknowledged that that you are a sinner deserving of the wrath of God, but that he has made a way for you to be rescued by the blood of his son who took your sins onto himself and bore the wrath that you deserved on the cross so that by his blood you may be saved now and forever by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ? And if the answer is no, if this is the very first time that you have heard that there is this man, Jesus, who loves you and who pursues you and who desires that you would be rescued, then I say that you must repent and believe in the gospel. And those aren't my words. Those were the first words that he said when he started his ministry. Fall on your feet and fall at the feet of the one who saves you. And church, those of you who believe, friends, have you acknowledged that he has a job for you? And it might not be the job that you think it is, right? It might not be the thing that you are hoping for uh, by hopping in the boat with Jesus today. He might be sending you right back to the place that you started. He might be sending you to a people that he has intentionally sent into your life to report to them all the things that Jesus had done for you. And practically, friends, that means you are surrounded by people every single day of your life. If you are a parent in this room, you are called to testify to your children the things that God has done in your life. If you are a husband in this room, you have been called to pursue your wife and to love her as Christ first loved you. Every single relationship we have, if you are the master or the slave, the husband or the wife, the father or the child, God has called you into an interaction in which he is strategically using you to speak the truth of the gospel to the people in this world that are actively perishing. Do you have a heart for those people, church? Do you desire that they would know this God who pursues? And the exciting news about our story today is that we have a chance to be reminded through the Holy Spirit, the words of our Lord, who says, get in the boat, let's go to the other side. We have a chance to be reminded of the promise of the things that he has done. We get to be reminded of what he is actively doing in our lives today, and we get to be reminded of the promises of the things he will do as he makes all things new. And finally, we have a chance to be reminded of the purpose that he has for every single person who he has called. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of the most high God. Our challenge today is to remember that and to consider what we're going to do about it. We could do that together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, for who you are and for what you have done. Lord, thank you for the place that you have brought us to today. I thank you, God, uh, for every single person in this room who you pursued who you uh, knew before time began, Lord, and who you called into a life of knowing you, Jesus, as Lord and Savior. Jesus, I pray that you would renew our affections for you daily, that you would remind us of your goodness, of your great love, and of the call that you have given us to make disciples wherever you call us to, Lord. I pray that 
If there is anyone in this room that does not know you, that you would awaken their hearts to the fact that they need you, that this world is perishing, and that, Lord, you are the only way, the only truth, and the life. God, thank you so much for this time that we have together to worship you and to be in your word. Help us to focus on you now, Lord. We pray all these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.